Welcome to the beginning of Advent season. This morning we're going to be talking about the Advent of Peace. Advent in general, if you don't know, if, if you're not sure what that even means, this is a season in which we remember and we long of God's people. We're longing for the coming of the Christ. We're remembering Israel saying, we're, when is the Messiah going to come? But even more so today for us, we long for the second coming of Christ when all that is skewed will be made right and made whole. That is what Advent is. It is a longing for the coming of the Christ. I was incredibly excited to, to have the opportunity to preach again to you today. That is, of course, until I realized that I was to preach on the Advent of peace during one of the most globally tension-filled times in human history. <laughs> it's starting to kind of seem like Jeremy either gives me 40 verses or a topic with incredibly low odds of success. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I, I am incredibly excited to speak today on the advent of peace. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but our current world does not feel like a very peaceful place. There's a tension. There's this like seemingly like second Cold War thing happening right now. And there's actually confirmed wars happening right now. Our nation in particular is more divisive and polarizing than ever. Things are more expensive than ever. Health issues are, are on rampant more than ever. And God help us, there is another election cycle coming soon. <laughs> Yet despite all of this, those of us in Christ, we are called by the word of God to be a peaceful presence amidst all of the chaos and the darkness in the world. Hear, hear the word of God, Romans 14. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. 2 Corinthians, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Ephesians 4, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. 1 Peter 3. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We are people called to be a peaceful presence in a dark world. So then, how are we supposed to understand this word peace, what it means in a biblical sense? So here's where I want to go today. I want to take us and form a, a sort of general biblical theology of the word peace. How we're going to do that is we're going to go to the Old Testament what is the, the Old Testament's understanding of peace? Then we're going to go to the New Testament and say, what is the New Testament's understanding of peace? And then after, I want to land in Ephesians 2 for the chunk of today and just unpack what Paul means by this phrase, for he himself is our peace. So peace in the Old Testament. Here's some common ways we'd see it. In greeting and farewells, Joseph says to his brother in Genesis, peace to you, do not fear. It's a greeting. Jethro says to Moses in Exodus, go in peace. So it's a farewell. There's a sense of general welfare. David asks Uriah, how is the peace of the people and how is the peace of the war going? So obviously it's not just how we think of it. There's a, a sense of general welfare as well. How is the peace of the war going? There is how we typically think of it, the sense of the absence of hostility. Ecclesiastes 3, we just saw this recently, that it's contrasted. There's a time for war, and there's a time for peace. So it is the absence of hostility. 
We have peace relationally with mankind. It's characterized by this friendship, this care, loyalty, this love between brother and brother, sister and sister. A close friend was even sometimes referred to as a man of my peace. So it could be a relational. But the most important one we see in the Old Testament is covenant peace, peace with God. This is a fundamental component of Israel's restoration and their new creation that is prophesied over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Now, I want to take two main covenants that we see in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is unique because as God did, it was a covenant of pieces. An animal was sacrificed. Animals were sacrificed and split in half, and it created this aisle. And the two parties would walk down this aisle and say, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may it be so to me like it was to these animals. The Abrahamic covenant is unique because as Abraham attempts to to step into this with God, as God is promising him a heritage and protection, God says, no, I'm going to do this alone. And God himself passes through the aisle. So God here is saying, I give you my peace that only I can carry out. Later on, we see the Mosaic Covenant. The people of God, Israel, is saying, I want to do something. I want to earn my, my getting closer to God. I want to do the right thing so that way I can make it back. That way I can be worthy of being in the presence of God. What do I have to do? And so God says, okay, here's my law. And he gives Israel his law in the Mosaic Covenant. And he offers peace if people obey the law. Ironically, this only creates more of a barrier between man and God, though. The main idea here in both regards of both of these covenants that we see in Israel, though, is that Israel has been given covenant promises of peace. Israel has. We eventually learn this comes to fruition by a Messiah that is to come. The Jews are given prophecies that this Messiah, this is the Jewish interpretation of who this Messiah is going to be. He's going to be from the Davidic line. He will rule Israel as a king. He will rebuild the temple. And he will reign in political freedom and religious freedom and in peace. That is who the Jews are expecting this Messiah to be, a political king that takes over. What is peace in the New Testament? We also see greetings and farewells. We see an absence of hostility as well. It's used like that. But there's this Greco-Roman concept of peace that we have to understand. In the culture, peace would have been like an ideal state that a hero achieves through war. In Roman culture, there's even an old adage, if you wish for peace, prepare for war. So an ideal state that a hero achieves through war. Now, this was easy for the Jews to swallow, right? They're, they're almost thinking, like, you're setting up our Messiah. We get it. Yeah, there's going to be a hero comes. Yeah, he's going to achieve through war and political freedom. Their minds are on, you are, you are just affirming our Messiah for us. So they swallowed this Greco-Roman concept really easily. However, the New Testament's understanding of peace did not depend on the Greco-Roman's culture understanding. The Jewish understanding of the, did not even depend on this. But the Old Testament's true purpose is pointing to an everlasting peace in Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. 
the main peace we see in the New Testament is messianic peace. This peace brings both the absence of hostilities and a reconciled relationship to God. This peace is accomplished by Christ and is experienced by his church. Look at me with Acts 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We see in Luke 2, the angel's proclamation of Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's through Jesus' incarnation, his sinless life, his becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection. In all of these things, he has now abolished the Mosaic covenant. He has fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. Peace in the New Testament should be understood as this. The hostile relationship between God and mankind is now a relationship of peace for those hidden in Christ. As good news. So with a better, though admittedly general understanding of like a biblical theology of peace, I want to jump into Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 19 for the rest of this morning. And we just want to unpack what does it mean that he himself is our peace? Start with me in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Father, help us understand this morning just the depth and the love that you have given your people in this text. God, all the words that I speak for us this morning, would they be honoring to you? Would they be from you, Holy Spirit? And when they go out into ears, and into our hearts and transform us. God, may you be honored. Help us to see the peace that you have offered us, Jew and Gentile. In Jesus' name. Verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So who is far off? We see here that Paul is now bringing in who is far off? The Gentile is far off. What does Gentile mean? Not Israel. Anybody that is not Israel, the far off, have now been brought near. Far off from what? Verse 12, right before this, we, we would see that Paul explains that the Gentile, this is a description of the Gentiles, those separated from Christ, far from the commonwealth of Israel, far off from the covenant promises, and far off from hope. That is who the Gentiles are. And then we see this verse in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off, Gentile, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 14, for he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Who is he? He being Jesus. Remember, verse 13 is talking about Jesus. So for he himself, we can clearly see the text means Jesus himself is our peace. Made us both. Who? Jew and Gentile. Made us both one. Meaning that Jesus has removed the barrier between Jew and Gentile so much so that we are now one. Now this is, might not sound like much to you and me today. But this is earth-shattering news to a Jewish person. This is earth-shattering. To a Jew, this good news for the Gentiles is blasphemous heresy. We see in, in Acts 11, Peter informs us that it was even unlawful for a Jew to commune with an outsider. Unlawful. He's chastised for eating with the uncircumcised. So for a Jew to say that that made us both one is earth-shattering news. But the heart of what Paul is saying actually goes even further than that. It's not just specifically Jew and Gentile of this region of this time. It also means that Jesus has removed the hostility between all who are in Christ for all places for all time. And that is why today this is good news for you and me. God has removed the barrier and allowed those who are far off to come near by the blood of Christ. This is a crucial understanding because this means that now there's no possible way that anybody in Christ could write another off. What do I mean by that? No one hates their own flesh. That's what the scriptures tell us. No one hates their own flesh. If you are an ear and I am a foot of the same body, we can't just walk away from each other. We have to deal with pain and tension that arises because your pain is my pain. My pain is your pain. And likewise, my joy is your joy, and your joy is my joy. We are now one. There is unity in Christ. Okay, so so far we know who, Jesus, and what. He has made Jews and Gentiles one. But how? How is that done? Verse 15 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So, making peace. There we see the one and the two again. How does he do this? By abolishing the law. Paul is trying to tick off all of the Jewish people. This is, again, earth-shattering news. For a Jewish person, obeying the law is how they believe they could draw closer to God. They are trying to be worthy of being with God. And here he says, by abolishing the law. But even still, how does Jesus abolish the law? Okay, we, we see that that's how it happens, but how does he do that? So by abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, how? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
Remember in verse, te- verse 13, it is by the blood of Christ that you are reconciled. And here we see through the cross, so specifically the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross of Christ. That is how you are now reconciled. Think back to the, the Old Testament sacrificial system for a moment, where to be a priest essentially meant that you were just a butcher performing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for the atonement of never-ending sins. Now, listen to the New Testament's language and how the cross of Christ has fulfilled that sacrificial system. Ephesians 1, In Him we have redemption through His blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses. Romans 7, likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, nor that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Galatians 2, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. Hold on, look at that again. For through the law, I died to the law. I didn't do that. I have not lived up to the law at all. So how does this work that I might live to God? Because I have been crucified with Christ. I'm hidden in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and he gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And lastly, Paul says this much more succinctly. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law is abolished, and the near and the far off are reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. It is perfect, poetic justice. Think of this, that the murder machine, like the cross, is ultimately the death of death. That is marvelous. Verse 17, And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. It says, and he came. The Jews, long-awaited Messiah, he came. He came in a way greater than the Jews could have ever imagined. He came as God in flesh, lowly as a fragile baby. Fully God, fully man. To those far off from covenant promises, the Gentiles, And he came for those who were near the covenant promises, the Jews. And what he has brought is peace. And we see this peace realized most clearly in this, verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is Paul's summary of everything he said here. Jesus came as a bringer of peace to those who are far off and those who are near, that we may have access to God as our Father. And we are granted access, it says, 
in one spirit. What spirit? The word used here is not just a spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, in one spirit to the Father. We see in John 20, this correlation again. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Our peace is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And even in this passage here, we see this beautiful Trinitarian relationship. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. The Father has sent me. Receive the Holy Spirit. This is good news for his people that our peace is now because the presence of the Holy Spirit is with us. And we can say, thanks be to God because of that. So fair next question then is practically, how do I utilize this access? Okay, I understand I have access to the Father through the Spirit by the blood of Christ. How do I utilize that? Ephesians 6 helps us. It gives us two primary ways I want to look at. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The first way we access God is by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God has revealed himself to his people primarily through his Word. So I want you to do this. Earnestly ask yourself this question. You've got to do this between you and God. How much do I truly treasure the Word of God? How much do I truly treasure it? How much do I desire to mine the truths and the freedom that I can find in it? If you received a weekly notification about your time in the Word, like you do your screen time on your phone, how would the scale look? Remember, we are talking about the peace of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're not being fed daily by the Spirit through the Word of God, chances are that you are probably lacking in peace. I know in the ebb and flow of my own life that when this discipline is off, I begin to notice a stark contrast in my ability to be a peaceful presence to those around me. Desire the Word of God, treasure it, Mine it for the rest of your life. Verse 18 goes on. It says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The second way we have access to God is prayer. So what does your prayer life look like? Are we utilizing this access to the Father himself through prayer? If you're lacking in peace in your life, this is another one of the first places you should look at. Is this a discipline that you've developed in your life? Pray diligently without ceasing and in the spirit's strength, not your own. Because in the spirit's strength, it's authentic. In your own, it's not. And on the flip side of this, I want to stop navel-gazing a little bit, but, but looking outward now. Prayer is missional. Prayer is a missional thing. This year, as you are putting up trees, you're putting up lights, and you'll eventually be giving and receiving many gifts from many different people, pray at all times that the Lord would use this cultural traditions to honor him. 
pray that those far off would see the true meaning of the season, see the incarnate God that came to die for them. Help them to see the birth of Christ clearly and that they would draw near. Pray for opportunities to have meaningful conversations with your kids, with other family, with friends. For those who are still far from Christ in those circles, pray that they would draw near. And don't don't overcomplicate it. Kids in the room, have you ever wondered why we love light so much and are afraid of the dark? Have you ever wondered? It's because we were created by God to live in the light. And kids, have you ever noticed how beautiful Christmas trees are? Resin, you have? Yeah, you've seen it? God made you in such a special way that you too love and you seek beautiful things. This is because we are longing to be with the most perfect and the most beautiful thing again, and that's God. And kids, do you love getting Christmas presents? There it was. Got them on that one. I do too. I also love giving Christmas presents. Do you know why? It's because Jesus has given so many good gifts to me that I can't help but give, give, give good gifts to others. See, there are so many, so many softball opportunities during this season to pray and for gospel conversations. Would you seize them? Would you go out, be prayerful and mindful, and seize those opportunities for the gospel conversations? Let's look back at verse 18. I don't want to miss one more just beautiful piece of this text. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Don't miss this beautiful Trinitarian salvation picture here. We have peace through him, Jesus, in one spirit, granting access to the Father. The culmination of all of this we see get wrapped up in verse 19. If you are in Christ, this is who you are, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You are adopted into a family. As we wrap up, look back with me in the Old Testament. See the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God to his people in Isaiah. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways. But I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace. Peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Now look at this side by side with what Paul has said to us today in Ephesians. And marvel and give thanks for this predestined love of God to his people. Look at these, Isaiah 57, 19. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, and I will heal him. Ephesians 2. Peace to you who are far off, and peace to you who are near. For through him 
We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So how are we healed? How does Jesus fulfill what Isaiah has said here? The promise of God to heal him, his people. Through him, Jesus Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. We are reconciled now with God. It is through Jesus' miraculous incarnation, through his sinless life, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection that we can now say with confidence, we can understand more clearly, he himself is our peace. May we be a peaceful presence that pushes back darkness wherever the Lord sends us. And may we earnestly long and pray for the second coming of our Prince of Peace. Jesus, would you come quickly? Pray with me. God, that is our our deep longing that you would return quickly. God, we see the promises that you've given us in your word. We've seen that you you yourself are our peace because you have reconciled both of us, making us one body now in you. Help us to try and wrap our minds around the mystery of the faith. We know you are faithful. We know you are good. We've seen it from Old Testament to New Testament. You've proven yourself over and over and over again, God. Draw those that are still far off near to you. We need your strength. We need your help. Let us be a light. Let us be a peaceful presence in a dark, chaotic world. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said.